Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We could talk this morning for three hours to Andrew Sentence. He was chief economist for British Airways. He's been a member of the, the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. We could talk to him about Foreign Secretary Johnson or the new Brexit czar. I hate that phrase. i got to come up with something better. Mr. Davis. But let us start with the Bank of England. Andrew Sentence, did Governor Carney show courage or resilience or bravery in not cutting interest rates? Well, it's not a decision just for Governor Carney. Um, he spoke out a couple of weeks ago and said he thought monetary easing might be needed. I think the jury's out on that. I think the MPC has taken the right decision. We need stability at the moment in um, our economic policies here in the UK. There's been so much turbulence on the political front. I don't think um, now is the time for um, monetary policy or economic policies to change. They should be stable. And so I very much welcome the fact that interest rates have been on hold. There's one member of the MPC, um, Vliga, who voted for a cut. Uh, he'd been hinting at that for some time, but he was outvoted by the majority of the committee. Yeah, and I want to mention, Michael McKee, Roger Boodle of Capital Economics nailed this a number of days ago on surveillance, looking for Carney to have uh, some strength here. Are you surprised, Andrew, that uh, Vliga is the only one who voted for a cut this month? I am a bit surprised, but I'm reassured, I think. <laughs> I think, um, you know, we've, been, we've seen some very fast-moving political events in the UK. And when things move fast, there's a tendency for people to sort of chase the action and to try and respond to fast-moving events. But we don't really have any evidence um, of what has happened to the economy um, I've been going around talking to many business people. Their basic philosophy is keeping calm and carrying on. You know, there are some deals that may be being put on hold. There may be some movements in the property market. But the bulk of manufacturing and services activity in the UK is carrying on as normal. So I think the job of the Bank of England is to respond to real hard data and real evidence. We won't have that. I don't think we'll even have that at the next meeting, to be honest. We won't have much data for July, so I think we need to wait till the autumn before working out how the Bank of England ought to respond. Well, we've got the pound down 11%, basically, since the Brexit vote, which should, in theory, bring us uh, an inflation spike. Is the Bank of England willing to look through the inflation spike and provide stimulus anyway? Because this is different from 2008 when Mervyn King did that, because uh, there's a good possibility we'll get some fiscal action this time, I would imagine. Yeah, I think uh, you're quite right. I think fiscal policy will be looser now uh, with the change of government than it would otherwise have been. I th hopefully the, the, the government will use that fiscal discretion in a sensible way. I don't think it should be uh, massively looser, but I think um, the previous government had a lot of emphasis on long-term projects which weren't going you know, to deliver any benefits to the UK economy until about 2030, like HS2. You know, some smaller scale infrastructure projects could be quite helpful in the current environment. And if 
the the deficit as a percentage of GDP mm. goes up a half or one percent because of that. That's not a big big deal. So I think that the job of the Bank of England they they expended all their ammunition in the financial crisis, and we're down at 0.5 percent interest rates. I think they should basically hold fire and maintain a stabilizing role in the current yeah. environment. Andrew Sentence, uh, one thing we're seeing here, Mike and I have been talking about this the last couple of days, is the rate of change of negotiations. Mr. Schäuble of Germany looking for a faster tone of negotiations than others. What will be the tact of the May government? Will, will Prime Minister May and her team try to move quickly with Europe? I think they will want to move cautiously. You know, this has been a big shock in the UK. Um, this is not what people were expecting. Uh, civil service, uh, government ministers were not prepared for this, um, and they are having to acclimatise themselves to the new situation. I think in those circumstances, I wouldn't be surprised until, if it wasn't until early next year, that we really got negotiations getting underway. Um, I think the new government under Theresa May, which I, I strongly support, needs a bit of time to put together its plans. I think our European partners need to respect that. I think, you know, a six-month or so period where we work out what our strategy is will be good for the UK and good for Europe. We're talking with Andrew Sentence, former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, uh, now that the Bank of England has decided to remain on hold for at least another month, suggesting maybe they will ease in August. Andrew, I'm curious as to what Mark Carney might do, because the minutes we, we just got from the last Monetary Policy Committee meeting suggest they discussed a variety of easing options, additional QE or direct uh, lending. What do you think they will do, just a straight cut first off? Well, I'm not sure they should do anything until the autumn. I think the problem that the MPC has is it's a committee that's very much driven by economic data and evidence. And even when they get to August, they won't have a lot of evidence about how the economy has responded. The referendum decision was a, a short-term shock, but you know, even when we won't get data for July, we won't know whether that data is really just reflecting that shock or whether it, it tells us something more fundamental. So if I was on the MPC, I'd be waiting until the autumn. I wouldn't want to make any changes in August. The bank, in its uh, minutes report, suggested that we are seeing uh, an effect of the Brexit vote on sentiment for households and for companies. What about the psychological impact of a rate cut, even if you don't necessarily need to respond to the data? Well, I think that, I mean, there are two points on this. One is a lot of the uncertainty that's been created in the UK economy over the last few weeks has been political. And we're now seeing the political uncertainty being resolved. We've got a new government in place under Theresa May. She's putting together a new team, and hopefully that will build confidence that we can manage this Brexit process in a sensible way. But in the immediate weeks after the, the referendum decision, there was clearly a shock, and people may be responding to that. I think the other thing is that you know, this is something that's going to play out over a very long period of time, even if the UK leaves the EU, which is, looks the most likely outcome, that's not going to happen for two, three, four, five years ahead. So monetary policy, which is designed to respond to short-term developments, shouldn't necessarily overreact to the situation. And if I was on the MPC, I would be focusing on what the data is telling us, and we don't really have very much data at the moment. We've got a meeting scheduled today, 
between the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and Mark Carney. Uh, Hammond said he wants to know Carney's views on where the economy is and where it's going. How blunt do you think Governor Carney will be? Well, I don't think Carney knows very much more than Hammond. The only additional information that the bank has is its network of agents who visit businesses around the country. But I think even even the, the views that they have distilled will be slightly affected by the political shock that we've seen. And that political shock, I think, will dissipate over the next two to three months. And the job of the MPC is to respond to the economy. So they really need hard economic data. And I'm not sure there's much hard economic data around. Even Mark Carney can't really create data that doesn't exist. So I think that discussion should more be about the strategy and the way in which the bank and the Chancellor will work together over the next few months. Andrew Sentence, thank you very much for joining us today, former member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. As the Bank of England remains on hold, no change in monetary policy this month, but a suggestion something will happen in August. Our global Wall Street audience, he's truly one of our most popular guests. Charles Peabody, uh, when he speaks, trust me to use the old Hutton line, all of global Wall Street listens. Wonderful to have you with us this morning with Portellus Partners. Let me cut to the chase from your last visit. Do you reaffirm that our banking system will be an ATM machine for shareholders in 18 months or two years out? I, I do, and, and this last CCAR results is a, a good indication. What's of that. a CCAR result? That was the stress test that the right. banks were put under by the regulators to see whether their capital will hold up in a stressed economic condition, and they passed with flying colors. And the regulators finally unleashed their ability to return capital, which I think is a seminal event, saying that the 0809 financial crisis is finally behind right. us. Right. One of the things you're so good at, Charles, is the idea of relative value and absolute value. Relative to the blue chip market, these stocks are dirt cheap. We get that idea. On an absolute value basis, are they worth buying shares today? I think Citigroup is. It trades at a substantial discount to book value, and um, book value is going to grow quite rapidly. I mean, J.P. Morgan's tangible book value was up 9% year over year in in this quarter. Um, So I look for book value to grow quite rapidly. Earnings are going to be tough. They're going to be tough. What about uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, J.B. Diamond's earnings? They're starting to see some trading revenue pick up, but they didn't manage to uh, match on revenue. Uh, where is J.P. Morgan at the moment? Well, you know, it, it was a solid quarter, but there were some mixed results. There, there was strength in capital markets, much better than we expected. But there was weakness in credit cards. There was weakness in asset management. There was weakness um, in the top-line revenues because of the margin squeeze. And uh, honestly, mortgage banking, which we all thought would be very strong, was not as strong as we anticipated. So it's a, it's a mixed revenue quarter. Well, you were talking about banks uh, being able to return money to shareholders. Jamie Dimon's been doing that all along. They are the biggest bank by assets. And uh, the Fortress Diamond uh, that we've been uh, told so many times, uh, do their results tell us anything about what the rest of the sector is going to be able to do, or do they sort of operate on their own? Well, they, they are unique in that they have been gaining market share at the expense of others. But I, I think the capital markets results on the investment banking side bode very well for Citigroup tomorrow. Although, you know, bottom line, their earnings aren't going to be that strong. And then I think their trading results bode very well for Goldman, who could have a, a blowout quarter next, next week. 
Are they running lean? I asked this question earlier this morning. Let me ask it of Charles uh, Peabody. By definition, given the churn of the political economics right now, everybody wants to quote unquote cut costs. Do they cut costs or do they have to do dramatic allocation of businesses like your colleague Michael Mayo at CLSA says Citigroup's got to jettison Mexico. Do you jettison Mexico or do you lay off a marginal 5,000 people? Tom, as you know, it's it's a balance. Um, you know, you have to. One of the things that J.P. Morgan has done very well this cycle is while they have been cost conscious, they've also invested heavily in businesses. And you have to invest in the mobile banking pl- platform. You have to invest in cybersecurity. You have to invest in you know asset management, wealth management. So th- th- it's a balance. I I think this idea that you can just split up the banks and re- you know return all that capital has limits, and there's no future in that. There's a balance there. Mm-hmm. We saw the Bank of England on hold today. The Fed has given us every indication they're going to remain on hold, at least for several months. How much does that continue to hurt the bank's net interest margins, their ability to make profits? Well, you, you saw it in Morgan's uh, reports today. Their, their net interest margin came down a lot more than many of us anticipated, I think. Sentiments tend to swing. And I, I think before year end, we're going to see sentiment swing back towards a rate hike and even maybe an inflation scare. So that would bode well for how banks trade between now and year end if we get that kind of sentiment swift shift. Well, even if their net interest margin uh, rises, they need to make a loan to make a profit on a loan. And we've been hearing from bankers lately saying we're not at this point seeing demand really pick up. Uh, the C-suite has sort of uh, gone on hold with all the news out there. Well, J.P. Morgan reported very strong loan results. The industry should see loans grow about 8% plus or minus this quarter. So the demand today exists. The question is, are we going to see a fall off because of energy, metals and mining, commercial real estate, et cetera? Charles Peabody with us with Portalis Partners. And I've got to ask you this question. It's from your U.S.-centric view. Do you have an optimism that the European banks can do American or Anglo-Saxon style mergers and acquisitions to solve their problems. We do that here. We do it relatively effortlessly. Do you have any optimism they can use an American template to solve their intractable problems? As you know, Tom, I don't follow the European banks um, at a micro level, but there's no question there's going to have to be some kind of government involvement in helping them recapitalize, number one. And number two, there are going to be um, sales of businesses the way Citi mm-hmm. and Bank America did over the last five years to help build their capital. So I think those are the two approaches that will help them deal with their capital um, inadequacies and and absorb the loss of, of, of loans. Mm-hmm. I want to make clear, you mentioned Citi twice. Is that your single best buy right now? It, it is. I, I think there's tremendous value. I think the company is uh, surprised on how much capital they're going to return. They're going to they can buy back 7% of their stock based on what they were approved for in, in CCAR. So that's like a forward stock split. Yeah. That's a joke, folks, yeah. on a 10 to 1 <laughs> reverse stock split. Charles Peabody, trying to undo the past. You aged aged the day they did that. Charles Peabody looking handsome in our studios. He is with Portalis uh, Partners. Where were you June 25th, 2009? 
I was enjoying the company of the wonderful and late Ken Pruitt, who used to go out west and catch trout the size of your leg. And we were talking with one M. Holland. On June 25th, 2009, Mr. Holland said low valuations make profitable investing easier. You would have made 10.9% per year, up 121% in the Dow if you'd listened to Michael Holland. He joins us right now. Michael, congratulations on being a resilient bull. I guess just for today, you look like a genius. Thank you, Todd. What an exciting morning to be on. There's lots of news this morning. And, uh, yeah, your 401K, or what you used to call your 201K, has tripled its uh, its value in the equity portion over the, since uh, 2008, 2009. And uh, maybe it's some, some uh, time to put a little bit aside in, ter- in terms of a, a sleep well insurance policy. But uh, valuations still aren't crazy uh, with, with the large cap stocks. And other parts of the world also, as you were talking about, David Sowerby met with uh, we met with some of our advisors from from Asia yesterday up in Boston, and, and uh, some valuations there look interesting as well. So even Michael Holland is beginning to look abroad. When you do that, do you sell twenty five multiple U.S. multinational shares that, like bonds, appear to be priced to perfection? Yes. Uh, quick, quick answer is yes, Tom. In, in, in cases where uh, you have extremely high valuation uh, companies that were trading when you and I spoke uh, in June of that year at, at uh, 9, 10, and 11 times earnings are now at 25 and 28 times earnings. You can go abroad. You can go to, to London. You can go to uh, Shanghai. Uh, you can go to different parts of uh, South America, Latin America, and get uh, great companies at, at, at fractions of those multiples. So, so the answer is yes. But before we go any further, I, I have to uh, point out this morning one stock here in the U.S. that it still is trading at uh, a a very modest multiple, less than 10 times earnings, is J.P. Morgan. And uh, talking about people making a call, Jamie Dimon uh, uh, made the Dimon call of the bottom for J.P. Morgan stock on February 11th of this year when he bought a half a million shares at, at, at I think, $53 a share. He's made a cool, quick uh, $5 million on his holding. And if you look at the one-year chart on J.P. Morgan stock, you should be talking to him, not to me, about the stock market. Mr. Dimon, if you're listening this morning, <laughs> you can come into the New York studio Bring Mr. Evangelista and all of your entourage, and we will ask you good, fair questions. Or, Jamie Dimon, you can visit Michael McKee out in Victor, Idaho. That would probably be—we'll take him out in the surveillance golf stream to Victor, Idaho. Yeah, that would be more fun, I'm absolutely sure uh, of it. Uh, Mike, I'm curious. We keep hearing over and over again from everybody that stocks are getting overvalued, that the, the— there's a limited upside, maybe not a downside, but uh, a limited upside. But stocks keep going higher. And Larry Fink was out this morning saying that retail investors are pulling funds from stocks. So what is it that uh, the real money is seeing here? Is it that there's just no other alternative? The only way you're going to get any kind of yield is to buy equities now, whether or not you think the price is fair? Well, we know that's part of it, Michael, but uh, in addition, we had a lot of people positioned on the short side over the last couple of months coming in. These are hedge funds and institutions. Uh, as you say, the individuals have been out of this market and, and continuing to retreat, but institutions and hedge funds had been, had been, out, had been uh, betting against this market, and uh, there, there is obviously some short covering. I think Fink referred to that this morning as well. So that's been going on. I think that um, one, of, one of the things that was easy back in 2008 2009, 
2009, Tom referred to that time period with Ken Pruitt, we, we, we had these incre- incredibly low valuations for these really great properties. J.P. Morgan at that time was trading at less than four times earnings. That, that's crazy stuff. So today we have full valuations, except that we have this, this, this conundrum with, with uh, interest rates that you would talk about every morning. And the, 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 the fact that we, we have these, these incredibly low or negative rates around the world means that the valuations for stocks, we don't know. People don't know. There's no pricing mechanism that works to tell you what is too high now. We knew what was crazy low back in 2008, 2009. We don't know uh, how far up this market can go. So I think to be out of stocks right now, even though they're at uh, all-time highs, would be crazy. But I think it's a great time to consider putting a little bit of your profits aside into a sleep well fund that if the market does have a, a major correction sometime in the future, which you can imagine might actually happen, uh, you'd sleep well despite the fact you own some stocks. You have a nice cash reserve as well to buy some stocks. I like that idea of a sleep well fund, um, maybe S-L-E-E-P for a ticker or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we have aside. an ETF, and, and the, the cost of running will be very low because it's all in cash. Uh, looking at uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, the um, net interest margins, as, as we were talking with Charles Peabody, came down quite a bit. Uh, return on assets, uh, just 1%. Uh, can J.P. Morgan keep earning its way into higher stock prices, as you're suggesting they are, as, as a value. Well, it, it, you know, the earnings were down. Let's, let's be clear about that. And, and, but uh, also, costs dropped. Uh, you know, you, you, I heard you talking earlier about uh, the management with Charles Peabody about the uh, expenses. Costs went from $14.5 billion down to 13.6, And that's in a period where he, he is continuing to invest in cybersecurity cyber and, and yes. asset management. And uh, there's a, a great uh, management uh, display going on at, at Morgan in, in a very difficult time. But I think the top right. line is a problem. And I think that the trading... The trading results were a month ago said that they were they looked back actually pretty good, so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Right. But they've done a great job, Michael uh, Holland. To get a little uh, nerdy here, with a low rate environment we're in, CFOs have almost a moral mandate to take weighted average cost of capital analysis and add on debt. What is their constraint to do that? I mean, it just makes sense. You go in, you pile on near zero coupon, international debt, and you retire equity. Is that a dumb idea? It's a no-brainer, Tom. It, this, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll transfer this from the nerdy uh, column into the no-brainer column. They have to do it. And if they don't do it, they better have a very good reason why. The, the central banks of the world have, have taken uh, the cost of capital to levels we have uh, close to 40% of all uh, sovereign debt around the world is trading at a negative yield. Excuse me, that doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's what Bloomberg tells you. And so we, ha- we have these incredibly low interest rates. 96% of all sovereign debt is trading below 2%, again, according to Bloomberg. These, these are crazy numbers. So, so uh, when we have companies like J.P. Morgan paying cash dividends of 3%, uh, Microsoft, Johnson & Johnson, ExxonMobil, the world's great companies, how, and, and then David Sowerby referred to the uh, 6% earnings yield uh, earlier right. in your, your conversation. So you add, you add 6 and 3, and that's 9 yeah. When you can get 9% with your money that you buy for 2% or 1%, right. uh, if, if you don't do it, you better, you better have a good reason because you should go to jail. This is what we don't. like. This is what we like, folks. We have Olivia Blanchard on, Mr. Sowerby on, one M. Holland on to give us a cross-section of wisdom around economics, finance, and investment. It's, it's enough to make Pim Fox smile. 
because Pim just wants to know, how can I make money? And I believe we're, we're getting suggestions from Michael Holland on that. Don't forget Pim Fox out on podcast, taking stock. Always a chestnut on how to not lose money as well. So I just put out on Twitter, for the benefit of one Jay Gorman over at Morgan Stanley, a photo, a snapshot of Ellen Zentner going after Sturgeon in some unnamed river in Idaho and Wyoming. <laughs> we now bring in, this is Gad About Gaddis, coast to coast. We bring in Michael McKee in Gad About Gaddis Fishing Hour of Bloomberg Surveillance. Mike, introduce our esteemed <laughs> fishing guest. Ellen, do you, do you get the impression that Tom might be a little jealous here? I get the impression that, that Tom is not a fly fisherman because no. we don't go for sturgeon. In, in <laughs> oh, I'm <Idaho>. sorry. <laughs> no, he's not really a fisherman. Ellen Zetner is chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley, uh, one of the uh, Bloomberg best economists uh, uh, a long time in the industry and probably has been fishing much longer than she's been studying economics because uh, you've been out here for a couple of days. You came out early to get uh, an opportunity to fish Ser- the waters. Of the seriously, yeah, what I is it like? came out early, and this is a side trip. <laughs> What's it like? I, I mean, seriously, what is it like fishing out in the great state of Idaho? You know, I have people that tell me that uh, whatever your religion, if you fa- can't find God on the water, then you're not going to find it, your religion at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a spiritual experience when you hook into a big <laughs> trout uh, and and you you bring them into the net successfully. Look at how beautiful these fish are. Thank it for such a wonderful ride, and then let it back uh, into the into the wild to be caught again. It's How's a great that? experience. How's that, Tom? For poetry, that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so now uh, let's move on and ask uh, about hooking Janet Yellen. She's certainly providing a fight to traders in the, in the markets uh, who've been whipsawed all year, now don't believe anything is going to happen. You were one of the first, one of the earliest calls that the Fed would be on hold. Uh, let me ask the tough question. Were you right for the wrong reason or right for a reason you didn't know at the time? Is the U.S. economy the reason we're not seeing the Fed move, or is it externalities? Yeah, you know, I think, Mike, that's a great question, being right, but for the, for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, I think we were right to expect them to wait so long to hike rates last year because we knew that they would be extraordinarily cautious. I can tell you before the summer global growth meltdown last year. I was getting nervous um, that we were going to be wrong and they were going to hike rates earlier in September. And that global growth meltdown was not in my forecast. Um, So in a way, it saved our expectation that they would wait until December. But we still have a Fed that's extraordinarily cautious. And I think what I notice the undercurrent right now is that because financial conditions have not tightened and actually on net they've eased a bit since Brexit, that people assume that Brexit won't play into the Fed's thinking at all, particularly for this July meeting, and that things are just fine, right? But they lose sight of what the economy was like before Brexit, where business investment was declining, job growth was slowing, the credit cycle has turned. This is definitely a late phase of the business expansion, and that has to play into monetary policy thinking regardless of an event like Brexit. Well, the big question is, uh, I mean, we're we're there on jobs. The big question is inflation. This morning, PPI comes in much stronger uh, than forecast. It's not going to be capturing 
uh, the Phillips curve effects of a, a tighter labor market, but are we seeing slack used up and inflation beginning to be generated, as we probably should have seen in a normal recovery some time ago, or are we just looking at base effects that are going to fade and the Fed doesn't have to worry about it? Well, I think, so of course, as a good economist, I'm going to say there's there's both in there, right? <laughs> you know, you look at import prices that were also released this week, and that tells you that the pipeline of price pressures still is not pointing to anything that should make the Fed feel like they have to move soon. Um, you've still got an incredible amount of uh, deflationary pressures coming from China. Uh, and that started long before the China uh, adjusted its, its currency in a more pronounced way last year. Um, and so that's, that's irrespective of what the, the U.S. dollar, the trade-weighted dollar is doing. China is going to continue to provide those disinflationary pressures. The Fed is always going to be confident that over the medium term it can return inflation back to the 2% goal. I think what their bigger problem is is convincing people that they're going to get there. Investors are not convinced. We can see that in inflation expectations. Households are not convinced. That is what terrifies monetary policymakers, that people lose faith in their ability to return inflation back to goal. Uh, and, and that certainly, I think, is the bigger problem for them right now. Well, certainly, in the minutes, it was noted that a number of Fed officials think they have a problem with their communication strategy. We are talking with Ellen Zetner, the chief economist at Morgan Stanley, and we were talking about uh, her Fed call that the Fed would be on hold for quite a while because of uh, what was going on in the United States, and that, of course, she thought she might be wrong until the Brexit vote. And that is the dominant theme now around the world, the, the, the fallout from that and what it might mean, not just in terms of uh, the political climate and the economic climate for the United Kingdom, but the political climate around the world. What are you watching at Morgan Stanley in this post-Brexit world? What are the things that investors and people need to be concerned about? You know, what I think is that we shouldn't hang our hat on Brexit and that Brexit and the fallout from Brexit is the reason why the Fed would not hike rates further. I want investors to focus on what was the U.S. economy like before Brexit. Through the second quarter of this year, business investment has declined now for three straight quarters. It's difficult to find that outside of recession. Not saying that this is a recession environment in the U.S., but just noting the risks uh, around uh, U.S. growth that were present even before Brexit. And it's not just an energy story. In the beginning, when oil prices were dropping, it was all energy investment dragging down overall investment numbers. Um, but you can't escape the incredible run-up that we've had in the dollar and not expect it to uh, start impacting manufacturing uh, and investment in the U.S. in a bigger way. And so it's broadened out, right? The decline in investment is more broad-based than just an energy story. 40% of the jobs in the U.S., manufacturing jobs in the U.S., are tied to exports, and global growth matters, and global growth is sluggish. And that's a theme that is present in the U.S., regardless of an event like Brexit. What's weighing on global growth? I mean, how do we get out of this? The scary thing is, is that monetary policy around the world has, for the most part, run its course. And Janet Yellen has been very uh, realistic and vocal about expressing that they have limited tools to fight downturns, and that's why they have to be extraordinarily cautious in raising rates further. Um, and I think you could say that's the general theme for the entire uh, global economy. Uh, and so I think something that uh, everyone should be focused on is fiscal policy 
fiscal policy around the globe needs to step up. And I know this sounds like a broken record. We've been calling for it in the U.S. for quite some time. Uh, and there's a lot of election uncertainty this year. What will a new president mean for the prospects of greater fiscal policy and fiscal stimulus in the U.S.? But this is a global mm. issue. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, uh, Summer's recent blog uh, last uh, week pointing out that governments really, uh, in this low interest rate environment, need to uh, set aside concerns over debt and just fiscal policy. I can't see how we get another impetus uh, to boost global demand and global growth without that. Ellen, what is the mood of investment by businesses? You've done a lot of work on that over the years. The granularity, the micro analysis of what business business is choosing to do. Are they investing and will they invest with all the other turmoil and distractions? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. You know, we've just um, released our business conditions uh, index. It's the first uh, survey of business conditions post-Brexit. And actually, it looks like at the, at the industry level, um, Brexit is not a, an, an issue. So it doesn't seem like investment is going to be further hit, at least domestic investment here in the U.S., by Brexit concerns. I, I think it's more an issue of just investment being dampened, right? And we have to lower our expectations of the level of investment that's appropriate in a, in a global economy that's growing this slowly. Uh, and so I think it, it, it can improve as we absorb the uh, hit to energy investment as oil prices have stabilized. We'll probably get better energy investment in the second half mm -hmm. of the year. Uh, but other areas, I think we see a lot of concentration in areas like the tech sector with growing R&D, where you've got big complexes of testing driverless mm -hmm. cars out in the Midwest somewhere, which will benefit uh, investment. But the, the time horizon has varied so greatly right. that we probably just aren't going yeah. to see those benefits for a time. 30 seconds, Ellen Zentner, uh, to be formal. When will Janet Yellen raise rates, just so we can get that on record? Uh, we've taken rates off the table for this year. Uh, in fact, we've taken rates off the table for the foreseeable future. Uh, and we'll see how things play out next year. I just I don't see this as an economy that needs to have tighter financial conditions, that the Fed needs to step in and slow it, that there's areas of overheating. I just don't see that. And so I think policymakers mm. will come to the conclusion that, that further rate hikes just don't seem appropriate. Ellen Zentner and Michael uh, McKee. Very quick. Oh, go ahead, Michael, please. I just got to very quickly in 10 seconds uh, say, uh, how far do we have to go before the expansion ends? Well, we're in the late phase of the business expansion. It, historically, it can last a few months to a few years. Uh, what I like is that the housing market is still producing a nice recovery there. And I think we'll produce enough jobs to get keep income growing. So I think the business expansion can continue if monetary policy okay. doesn't choke it off. Ellen Zentner, Michael McKee. Where are they? We're, On a river. We're not in, we're not in Colorado, but we are in the Rocky Mountains, yes. We'll go talk fishing. You saw everything as far as you can see. And they say that he Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio.